Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Welcome to our study of Revelation. And we are in Passion Week also. Some call it Holy Week. But this is a very special week as we celebrate and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And um, hope that you're enjoying uh, the week and having a good celebration. It's a very meaningful time for all of us as believers. And hope you're having a meaningful week as well. Don't forget Friday night we will have here, Jews for Jesus will be here, Christ and the Passover explaining how Old Testament Passovers uh, would foreshadow Jesus. And so that is uh, coming up at 6.30 on Friday night. And so that will be here live in our worship center. And then don't forget also Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, and it's going to be a great time. Everybody here will get a, a free book, and all of our guests will have special gifts as well. And just a very special celebration of all that Jesus Christ has done for us, and especially the powerful resurrection of Christ and what that means to us. So don't forget uh, this Friday night, and then of course I know you won't forget Easter Sunday. All right, we are to Revelation chapter 7, and we're glad that you're here. Those joining us all online, virtually, we always have a large crowd. Last Wednesday night, we had a large crowd as well, so wherever you are and however you may be joining us, we welcome you also, and looking forward to uh, our study tonight. So grab the, uh, uh, your device uh, or your Bible, either one, ESV is the version I have. Let's have a word of prayer, and let's get started looking at Revelation chapter 7. Father, we want to thank you tonight for who you are. Thank you that this week uh, is very special for us because of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. God, I want to thank you that in Jesus you came as the perfect man and the, perf and, and the only God. And God, just that we thank you that Jesus Christ was 100% both, took our place on the cross and rose powerfully on the third day, and that gives us our hope. And so, Lord, as we study Revelation tonight and they worship the Lamb, may we worship the Lamb as well and join in the chorus of our praises to you. God, give us insight, give us wisdom as we go through this tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, this is our eighth week that we've been looking at Revelation. We had week number one where uh, was the introduction of the book. Really key to understanding Revelation is the introduction. And then we're now to chapter seven. Remember what the name of Revelation means. Apocalypse, it's the Greek word. Apocalypse means to unveil. Something that's previously been hidden has now been uncovered. Uh, so it's an unveiling. Written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. John wrote it, of course. Jesus' disciple uh, wrote it about 90 AD. So that's about 60 years after Jesus has resurrected and going back to heaven, dying around and being crucified around 30 AD. So it's been about 60 years now. And uh, it's a series of visions that John receives while on the island of Patmos, exiled there in the spirit on the Lord's day, whenever he received a series of visions, more than 60 different visions in this book, referencing more than 350 Old Testament passages. So Revelation, highly symbolic and highly Old Testament centered as well. So wrote the letter of the seven churches. And then after the letters to the seven churches, we saw chapter 4, saw a vision of the throne of God, uh, throne room of God, God seated on the throne. Chapter 5 is a scroll no one's worthy to take and unseal. Uh, but Jesus was the only one searching heaven and earth, the only one worthy, the only perfect God, perfect man, worthy to open the scroll. He opened the scrolls, and then we saw last week, Six of the seven seals were broken, and what happened when they were? 
Of course, the first seal was uh, the, the white horse that came out. Looked like the good guy, but it's not. It was the Antichrist imitating everything good that God has. The enemy always has some type of imitation for everything good God gives us. And so, he was imitating Christ, the Antichrist, uh, the white horse. Second seal was the red horse that was war that breaks out during the Great Tribulation. And then the third seal, the black horse, which is famine. Scarcity of food usually always follows after a war. We're seeing that in the Ukraine right now. Um, and so the, the famine that comes, the scarcity of food that follows the war, the third seal, the black horse. Then the fourth seal, the pale horse, which was death. Uh, natural disasters and catastrophes where one-fourth of the earth dies, is killed uh, through this. And that was the fourth seal. Fifth seal, of course, the saints under the altar wondering when their blood will be avenged. Said, just wait, just rest until the time uh, comes. And then the sixth seal, of course, natural disasters and again catastrophes uh, up on the earth. And so six of the seven seals were in chapter 6. And now there's a two-chapter interlude of visions John has before we get to the seventh seal. So the seventh seal is, is out there another couple of chapters away. So tonight, two visions that John has while he's waiting for the seventh seal during the Great Tribulation. That's kind of a context as to where we are. Now, Remember again some principles we looked at in how to interpret Revelation. I want to remind you of those again. One is accept the most literal interpretation unless it's, there's an obvious reason it's symbolic. Don't go trying to look for symbolic first. Go to the most literal interpretation first unless it's obviously symbolic then you can and see the symbolism that may be behind it. So many people want to see symbolism in everything of Revelation. That's the wrong approach. You're going to come up with interpretations that are inaccurate. Another principle we saw, do not get caught up in all the symbolism and miss Jesus. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the millennial reign, premillennial, postmillennial, uh, all of the millennial reign, the 144,000, which we're going to look at tonight, everything, and you miss Jesus, who is the key to the book. And then the third one we're going to talk about more tonight. Remember, exegete, don't eisegete. Exegete means to draw out what's in there. Eisegete means to read into something that's there. I'll show you a couple of examples tonight as we're in Revelation chapter 7. So exegete what's there. Don't eisegete and try to read into what is not there or what you think is there or what your theology says is there. Let your theology come straight from the Bible itself, from Scripture alone. All right, let's look at chapter 7 and let's look at the visions. First of all, uh, letter A on your outline, the first vision, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7, is the 144,000 from Israel are sealed. So let's start looking. When we get to chapter 7, between the 6th and the 7th seal, as I mentioned, John had two visions. Both of the visions are groups that will be delivered during the first part of the Great Tribulation. Most theologians believe when we get to chapter 7, we're about two to three years into the Great Tribulation. So about two to three years into it, there are two groups that are going to be rescued or delivered from the Great Tribulation. First group, 144,000 Israelites. Second group, 
a multitude from all different nations who are going to be martyred for the cause of Christ. They're going to die in the Great Tribulation for the cause of Christ. And we're going to see that starting in verse 9. So now let's look at verse 1. After this, John said, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now stop there for a moment. John in this vision, first of all, the first vision, he sees four angels, living creatures and and angels are described in the previous chapter, four angels standing there at the four corners of the earth. Now, critics of the Bible say, ah, you Christians, you don't know, you don't know that the, you think the world's square. You don't know it's round. The Bible is so out of tune with science It says that the earth has corners to it. It's round. It doesn't have corners. Well, we know that. The Bible's not trying to say or make an assertion that the world is square. Uh, It was a euphemism that's used in literature all the way back to ancient days. It's the four points of a compass, north, south, east, west. Four corners of a compass, not the four corners of a square block earth. So this is not trying to make a a claim that the earth is not round, as critics say. It was literature all the way goes back, I said, into ancient days uh, that show the four points of a compass is what is talked about here. So the standing at the four points, north, south, east, west of the earth, and they're holding back four winds. Now, the four is symbolic most Bible scholars believe because of the four horsemen holding back those horsemen who are trying to ready to come. The red horse and the white horse and the black horse and the pale horse. Trying to hold those back. So because God has to deliver, wants to deliver two groups first before this happens. So holding back the four winds of the earth. Now usually whenever you see in Scripture wind... It is usually a destructive force of God's judgment. You'll see that several times. Hosea 13, verse 15. Several times in the Bible, wind is a destructive force of God's judgment. And so they're holding it back from those things on earth that are most affected by wind, which is the earth, sea, trees. So protecting these things, we've been seeing that the last few days of how destructive the wind is around us, haven't we? But that's what he's talking about here. So then he goes to verse 2 and he says, And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. Stop there for a moment. A couple of things in verse 2 I want to show you. Notice where the angel's coming from in verse 2. The rising of the sun. Where's that? East. Exactly right. Often in Scripture, divine help or divine judgment comes from the east. You'll notice it, it notes 
when something comes from the east, it's either judgment from God or it's help or salvation from God. You remember all the way Pharaoh, uh, whenever the, the uh, wind blew in, the plagues came from the east. Whenever the wind parted the waters that they went through, wind from the east. Well, you might remember in uh, Ezekiel uh, uh, verse, uh, let's see, Ezekiel 19, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 18, all have winds from the east that are coming either in judgment or help. Hosea and Jonah both have winds from the east that are coming uh, in judgment or of help. Matthew 23, go to the New Testament. Herod's glory will depart from the temple in Matthew 23 from the east. And when Jesus comes back, where's he coming from? Split the eastern sky. So, you'll notice the east is significant many times throughout Scripture. Well, now we get to heaven and there is an angel who is ascending from the east. So, we know the angel's either judgment or help, right? Well, this one's of judgment because we're told that. The angel ascending, ready to bring power and harm on the earth from the four horsemen. But God says, hold on a second, I have a seal to deliver. Did you notice that in verse 2? The, the seal of the living God. Now, anytime you see the word seal, S-E-A-L, in the Bible, it's significant. Uh, we talked last week, uh, Sunday morning, Daniel, the lion's den, is what I preached on. King Darius uh, of Persia sealed with his ring, his signet ring, that the lion's den should be covered. Here's the background behind the sealing. In the Old Testament, um, it was usually a king with a signet ring, uh, but they would make some kind of impression with, uh, onto a document or, or a, of something showing ownership or showing authenticity. So, if the, if the seal, for example, uh, whenever Daniel was in the lion's den, Darius put his seal on it. In other words, the king has done this. Nobody opened it up. Nobody tried to rescue Daniel. This is the authority of the king. So if they wanted a document that showed authority or ownership, it was the king's document or it was from the king, he put his signal, his seal on it. The Bible talks about God doing some of the same things in Scripture. Sometimes it was a seal of protection like Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4. But other times in the New Testament, it was a seal of ownership. Now, now listen carefully. We Baptists are accused of believing in once saved, always saved, and we're one of the few denominations that believe that. And I've asked many times, why do you believe for once saved, always? Oh, it's because you're a Baptist. Oh, yeah, okay, I forget. You Baptists believe. No, no, it's not because I'm a Baptist. It's because Scripture teaches it. There are many passages that teach in the New Testament that, that you'll never lose your salvation. But I think one of the most powerful ones is the image God gives us three times in the New Testament. Once in Ephesians 1.13, once in Ephesians 4.30, and in 2 Corinthians also. Uh, it tells us, chapter 1, verses 21-22, God said, whenever you're saved, He puts His seal upon you. Your salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit promise, which means what? Authenticity, it's genuine. You're truly saved, you're truly saved. 
and uh, ownership. You're God's. Nobody can make you lost again. Not even yourself. You're not powerful enough to make yourself lost again. So if your salvation's of God, he has said you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and you are guaranteed until the day of redemption. He tells us that twice. So if God has set his seal upon you as saved and the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing it until the day of redemption, I don't care who tells you you can be lost again. They're wrong. They're not more powerful than God. They're not more powerful than the Holy Spirit sealing you until the day of redemption. You were going to be saved until the day of redemption. So that's one of the most powerful images I know of the New Testament that proves our salvation. Well, he says now there is a seal of the living God that he wants to put on a group during this, this uh, 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 tribulation time. Who, who's the group? Well, it's 144,000 people. They are sealed for a unique, special service. We're not told what it is, but they're sealed for that. So now let's go into verse 4, actually verse 3, and, and let's see what the sealing is about. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Significant. Back in biblical days, soldiers would put an insignia or a name of their God on their foreheads to show devotion to them and to show to whom they belonged. They did that. Many soldiers did that. So now God does the same imprint here of those who are His. The time during the Great Tribulation, the imprint will be of those who are His. Here's something else interesting. Later on in Revelation, we're going to see Satan, who is the master imitator, trying to imitate that with the 666 on the forehead. Why the forehead? It's conspicuous. It's uh, obvious. You meet someone, something's on their forehead. You see it. And so the soldiers would put it here because it was conspicuous as to who they belonged to, who they were devoted to. And so that's why the forehead. And so the seal... On of God on their foreheads. Verse 4. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now I'm going to read the tribes and then I want to talk about the tribes. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. I'm going to come back to that list in a moment. Who are these 144,000? Well, there have been a lot of theories. One theory is they're actually Israelites. I mean, full-blood Israelites as we would know Orthodox Jews to be. Some have said, no, it's symbolic. They're not Israelites. They're the church. This is the church. They're being saved out of the Great Tribulation. Well, are you exegeting or are you eisegeting? Does the Bible itself tell you it's the church? No. So be careful. Now, there are lots of views of Revelation out there from people 
Sometimes they take those views and they put them on the revelation. And so they come up with, oh, well, this has to be the church and this has to be this and this has to be this. Be careful about any doctrine that does that. Let your theology and your belief system come straight from Scripture. Not from a man who thinks he has it figured out. Or a woman who thinks she has it figured out and imposes their beliefs onto Scripture. We're not told it's the church. There's a belief system out there called replacement theology, which believes that the church uh, has taken the place of Israel. Replaced Israel. So every time you see Israel, it really means the church. That's fine, but where are we told that? Where are you told that? And give me a passage where we're told that. So there are some here, oh, it's the church. Well, no, it looks like it's Israelites, doesn't it? Because we're told the tribes that they are from. Now, there are other groups that have tried to hijack these 144,000. I know that you know one of them. They show up at your door and knock on the door, want to talk to you. Jehovah's Witnesses. And they say, these 144,000, that the Jews are really Jehovah's Witnesses. And the 144,000 are the Jehovah's Witnesses that are going to heaven. And they, until they got to be greater than 144,000. Then, when there were more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, they had to think of something else. So, now their belief is there are only 144,000 of the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to be saved. So, if there are how many ever Jehovah's Witnesses there are, only 144,000 are going to make it. So, you better outwork somebody else who may have your place. That's why they're very zealous to show up at your doors and ride bicycles, and they are working hard to get there. But we're going to see in a moment, salvation doesn't come from working hard. It comes from belief in Jesus that the Father gives to you whenever you place your faith in Christ. But the Jehovah Witnesses have said these 144,000 are us. Now, there are, there are some who say, well, this is the church, and the reason they say that is, well, the reason it's the church is because this number is symbolic uh, because these tribes are not arranged in the regular way. They're, it's kind of an irregular list. Okay? Give me a regular list then. There's not one. The tribes of Israel are mentioned 20 times in the Old Testament and never in the same order. So what's the regular list? There isn't one. They're, they're all over the place. Now, another theory as to who these 144,000 are, in fact, it's a very popular theory. Many of you may have heard this, that these are Jewish evangelists. Not 144 that are saved. These are 144 that are going to go out and evangelize, preach Jesus, and the ones that are saved from their preaching are the ones that are martyred starting verse 9. And so that's a popular theory as, as well. So let's look at the list here about the tribes a little bit. Very interesting. Here's one of the things I find interesting. After the Assyrian captivity in the Old Testament, God's people, uh, 722 B.C., the 12 northern tribes of Israel, they disbanded. and They dissolved and they never regathered. As a group, they, they assimilated in other nations and other people groups. And then the southern part, after 70 AD, whenever Rome 
kind of dismantled Judaism, then the southern tribes dissolved and assimilated all over the world. And so that's where they are. But in the great tribulation, God still knows everybody's family tree, no matter where they are. And he chooses 12,000 from each tribe. thought that was pretty interesting. So look at the listing of the tribes. Do you see one of them that's omitted? Anybody know which one's not there? Dan. Tribe of Dan. Not there. Why? Well, Dan is the tribe that introduced idolatry into Israel in Genesis 49-27 and in Judges 18-30. And they're, they're being punished for it, we're told. So Dan's not there. Because the tribe of Dan is not here listed, a lot of people think that the Antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan. A lot of theories on the internet. You can just type in tribe of Dan Antichrist. You're going to see a ton of theories that the Antichrist is going to be Jewish, coming from Europe, from the tribe of Dan. Because they're not here. But the problem I have with that is, if you look in Ezekiel 48, which is obviously talking about the millennial time, Dan is there. So, um, we don't know about that. So, Dan is omitted here. He's not in, his tribe is not here. Interesting also the way that, that their Ephraim uh, is, is, Ephraim is not mentioned. Did you notice that? Manasseh is mentioned. Now, Joseph was represented by Ephraim and Manasseh, two tribes together. But Ephraim's not mentioned. Manasseh is and Joseph is, but Ephraim's not. Why is Ephraim omitted? Ephraim also, according to Hosea 4.17, introduced idolatry into Israel in the Old Testament. So that appears to be why these two are not there. They're the one that led God's people to worship other gods. And so we don't see their tribe so, it appears that these 144,000 are the ones that are going to be saved during the Great Tribulation. Well, wait a minute, preacher. Why couldn't they be the evangelists? They could be. But usually, whenever you see the word sealing, and the word seal, it's almost exclusively salvation. You don't really see anybody sealed to be an evangelist. But you always see sealing for salvation. So it appears to me because of let Scripture interpret Scripture, it appears then that these are going to be saved out of the tribulation. Now, let me go one step further before we get to verse 9. There are a lot of other people that say that the church by now has already been raptured. We're two to three years into the great tribulation and that the church is not going to go through the tribulation and that the church has been raptured out and that um, whenever, the Holy, whenever the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit is taken away. And that's why there's chaos down here. The Holy Spirit's gone. The Holy Spirit's been removed as well. Here's my question. From that theory, if 144,000 get saved during the tribulation, how on earth do they get saved without the Holy Spirit? Good question. 
Well, there have been those who believe this theory that try to explain it. And I've heard people say, well, the Holy Spirit will not be needed for these to be saved. Excuse me? The Bible's clear. Nobody comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit's drawing you, convicting you. Holy Spirit brings you to salvation. So, of course, the Holy Spirit's needed to be saved. I've heard another person say, well, it's kind of like the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament? They got saved without the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit had not been manifested yet. and It was here. He's eternal. But it hadn't been manifested. And so they're saved here just like they were saved in the Old Testament. Okay? Are you eisegeting or are you exegeting? Are you taking a theory out there that man has produced or does the Bible actually tell you that? The Bible never says anywhere that people will be saved in the great tribulation like they were saved in the Old Testament. Never says that. That's your theory. But that's your eisegesis, not your exegesis. Here's what another person says. Well, this is a special case. Yes, you need to get saved by the Holy Spirit, but in the tribulation, God's going to make a special exception. Okay? Are you exegeting or are you exegeting? Where does it say in Scripture God is going to make a special exception for those to be saved in the tribulation? It doesn't say it. So be careful taking your theories that man has put out and come up with as to how revelation can be interpreted and trying to fit those into Scripture rather than letting Scripture be the one that teaches you what to believe. So, that's just an, another example of, I think, take it for what it says to us. Now, let's go to, uh, secondly on your outline, let's look then at verses 9 through 17. The second vision, letter B, a great multitude from every nation. John now sees a second vision. Verse 9, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Stop there. I have, I have some observations here just from verse 9. Let's look at verse 9. As we, as we see it here in the second vision, notice first of all that all tribes... And languages and nations and peoples are represented. John saw them. That's what he tells us. I saw. So that tells me two things. It tells me, first of all, the Great Commission worked. Remember the Great Commission? Jesus is about to ascend to heaven and he says, Go into all the world, teaching and preaching all that I've commanded you. It worked. They're there from all nations and tribes and languages. It worked. It was successful. Second thing it tells me, I thought we're all going to be the same in heaven. We're, there are going to be differences in heaven. Differences in languages. Differences in 
in, in, in tribes, races, I guess, tribes, nations. John saw different people. He saw, oh, there's some from here and there's some from here. How did, if everybody's the same in heaven, how did he see the distinctions? We'll all be individuals in heaven. We'll not all be the same in heaven, evidently, because he saw, he saw from everywhere. Spurgeon, in, on this passage, says every seed have its, has its own body. And so he believes, as the Corinthians passage said, seeds buried corruptible and raised incorruptible. Yes, we'll all have glorified bodies, but he thinks the distinctions may still be there because of what John saw. Doesn't mean one's better or worse than the others. It just appears that the nations and languages and peoples and tribes, I've heard people say, oh, we're all going to be the same in heaven. Not according to John, we're not. Because he sees them from everywhere. But notice, every time John sees something in heaven, it's always in reference to the throne of God. These were standing before the throne, and others are beside the throne. But it's always in reference to the throne because God is the central part of heaven. Everything's in relation to where he is. Notice they have white robes that, of course, covered by the righteousness of Jesus. Priestly service, the white robes as well. Having palm branches in their hand. That sounds like the triumphal entry from last Sunday, doesn't it? Waving the palm branches. Whenever you wave palm branches, it meant victory. They wave the palm branches as the, as the conquering king or commander would ride back into his city after he won a great battle. And so here the lamb has won a great battle and the palm branches are being waved. And he saw them with white robes and the palm branches in their hands. In verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. They're all worshiping the Lamb. Now, who's the Lamb? Jesus. There, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there are people out there that don't believe Jesus ever claimed to be God. But if he didn't, idolatry is taking place in heaven because they're worshiping the Lamb. So absolutely Jesus is God. They're worshiping in heaven just as they worship God. So they're worshiping the Lamb, it says. And a voice cries out, salvation belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to you outworking somebody else. Salvation belongs to to God, and He gives it, He grants it as a gift whenever you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And here's one of the things I noticed. Sometimes I think we take our salvation for granted on earth. Been saved since you were that tall, and yeah, I'm you. it just kind of gets old to you. Not in heaven. Boy, they are praising and thanking Him for salvation in heaven. I don't think we always do that. Sometimes we sing and stand to sing and a lot of people are going there like this. Well, wait, wait a minute. They're, they're falling on their faces in heaven and you're standing like this before him? Boy, it seems like heaven has a much greater appreciation of salvation than do we. And so he heard this cry with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and, and to the Lamb. And the verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces 
before the throne and they worship God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You know what I noticed about this passage today? I was listening to Christian music driving to work, contemporary Christian station. And I just started noticing how many contemporary Christian songs are kind of veiled that they're worshiping God, but they're really talking about themselves. Have you ever noticed how many I and me and my is in Christian music? So I started counting on my way up here. In one chorus of one of the most popular songs today, I counted five I, me, and my and one Lord. You don't see that in heaven, do you? It tells us what they're saying. I don't see one I or me or my. It's all you, 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 and I fall on my face. Worship in heaven seems to be different than worship here. It's not about us at all. It's only about him. Notice verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, John, and saying, who are these? Wait a minute. The, the elders asking John who they are? It should be John asking the elder who these are. It's the elder asking John, who are these? Clothed in white robes and from where they come? Verse 14 tells us, I said to him, sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A couple of thoughts. We know that the, the ones described here, giving praise and honor to God and Jesus, are the ones who have been killed during the tribulation. So imagine with me. It's the tribulation. A teenager comes to know Jesus, gets saved maybe in youth group. We don't know. And then he goes home and his grandfather becomes a Christian. And then the whole family trusts Christ. And because they did, they're immediately shot or stabbed or killed. Some violent way because it says the blood here. The blood implies a violent death. Verse 14. So they're killed violently for their faith. And immediately go to heaven and they're part of this group. Killed in the tribulation time. And their praises ascend to the throne. That's who the group is. Killed in the tribulation. Now, usually when you wash something in blood, it doesn't get white. Right? I made a mistake as soon as we married. I washed something red with something white. Lisa said, I'll do the washing from now on. We had pink. Usually, you wash something with blood or red, it doesn't get white. But when God washes, it does. Your sins, my sins. The blood of the Lamb washes them. According to Isaiah, they're white as snow, pure as wool. And so, it says they have washed, in the, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then we go to verse 15, there's a spontaneous outburst of praise again. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him daily, verse 15, night and day in the temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Wait a minute, did it say that they, that they serve him? Are we going to serve in heaven? 
Yeah. What does that look like? I don't know. But we're going ser- to work in heaven. We're going to serve the Lord in heaven. I think sometimes we think we're going to serve the Lord on earth. We get to heaven. We just rest. We're going to serve. They serve the Lord in heaven. Not, not in Dana's temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Look at verse 16. They'll hunger no more. They'll thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. What does that sound like? It sounds like the wilderness in the Old Testament. It sounds like Revelation 21 in the new heaven and the new earth. He will protect us with his presence. We'll hunger, we'll thirst, the heat will not strike us. Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Will be, and and be, be their, their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Praise God what heaven's going to be like. Sounds like Revelation 21 doesn't in the new heaven and the new earth. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But let me mention one more thing. We'll close. You know, as I read Revelation 7 and 6 and 7, both from last week and tonight, it's not as far-fetched as you think it may be. You say, well, when's the great tribulation going to happen? Well, just think right. Right now, there is large-scale persecution going on of Christianity worldwide. It's not reported in the media media doesn't care to be honest with you whether Christians are persecuted but there is a worldwide global persecution of Christianity right now that's unprecedented Open Doors is an organization that tracks this they track the persecution of believers around the world and Open Doors says 340 million Christians tonight live in places that experience high levels of persecution not mild like we experience High levels of persecution. One in every eight Christians on the planet tonight experience intense persecution in a location that does. For example, North Korea already functions as a tribulation, great tribulation state already. If a Christian is discovered in North Korea, killed on the spot or deported to a concentration camp. Afghanistan Pakistan, Somalia, Islamic states of northern Africa, deadly for believers. Because of rising Hinduism, uh, Hindu extremism, India is becoming very dangerous for believers in Christ. In Eritrea, Christians are often held in shipping containers in scorching heat, and many of them burn up. We don't hear these stories. But worldwide, There is intense persecution of believers going on right now. In China, millions are under technological surveillance. I'm sure you probably heard there is advanced facial recognition software uh, in China. There's tracking systems on cell phones in China. In, In religious venues, they see faces going into services. They see faces who are meeting underground to worship. They track cell phones to see if you're in a in a Christian worship service. If you are, persecution takes place. And now they're finding out that China is exporting this software to other nations that want to persecute Christianity. 
So they'll have the facial recognition, the cell phone tracking. And so you're looking at all of this today, and the first few years of the tribulation, folks, look a lot like today. War, famine, globalization, death, persecution, those dying for their faith in Christ. It's not far-fetched to see all that's taking place today that the great tribulation describes. The good news is, the good news in all of this, there's victory through the Lamb. That's what we're going to celebrate Friday here, and that's what we're going to celebrate Sunday as well. We don't have time for questions. We have 30 seconds. We don't have time for questions tonight. If you have any questions or comments, please email me this next week. I'll be glad to hear them. Any questions you may have about this passage or revelation, any at all, certainly be, be glad to, to, to address those. Let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Lord, more than anything else, we just want to take your word as it is. Your word is inerrant. It's infallible. It is truth. So, Father, would you teach us through your word exactly what you want us to know. Thank you tonight for the Lamb. We join our voices to the chorus of those in heaven giving praise and honor to you. Father, we thank you and praise you for our salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you this weekend.